everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. Today is a huge day. Not only do we have three incredible celebrities on my show, uh, I get to meet Elliot Kalen for the first time, who I'm such a big fan of and I've been excited to meet for a long time. And a personal success on my own podcast hosting journey, I get to be finished with the hidden years after today. It has been a long three months. I've really enjoyed the ride and I'm so happy to be moving on to new content because there's like eight plot lines in every issue and it's been a journey. Uh, Both Erica and uh, Elliot, uh, excuse me, both Erica and Gregory have done Hidden Years content with me already. I'm so happy you guys came back for the ride today. Let me have each of my my guests introduce themselves. Let us know your name, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And uh, my opening question today is, what's the craziest time you've ever had in a cave? If you haven't been in a cave, a basement, a sub-basement would count. Anything underground, because we're going to talk about subterranean today. <laughs> Let me begin with Elliot. Hi. Hello. Uh, my name is Elliot Kalen. My pronouns are he, him, his. And uh, listeners may know me from most likely the podcast I do, The Flophouse, which is a bad movie podcast on the Maximum Fun Network, where me and my friends Dan and Sue talk about movies, and it's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, it's, it's a bunch of nonsense jokes. Um, but I also... I uh, am the creator of the comic book Maniac New York from Aftershock Comics, and uh, or you may know me, you may know, you wouldn't know me necessarily, but you may know some of my television work because I was a writer for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart for a number of years, and I was the head writer on the Netflix version of Mystery Science Theater 3000. And so that's those are nerd bonafide, and I've written some books for Marvel also, but that, but nobody remembers those. So the, uh, those are nerd bonafides that you people may know. Uh, people will also know you on this show from Spider-Man X-Men because oh, yeah. my favorite supervillain who I talk about all the time is Sauron and you write my favorite Sauron, but we'll get Oh, there. thank you. We'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> Sauron is, uh, that was a dream come true to be able to, to, to write Sauron. And you're asking about caves. Yeah. What's uh, the craziest time you've ever had in a cave, Elliot, Kalen? I've, I've been in a surprising number of caves, but they've all been tours. They were not particularly crazy, but, um... I'm trying to decide if there's a story I'm trying to decide if I'm going to tell. And I think I'm not going to tell it. But the, the, uh, the there's a story there's a, there's a story about something that happened to me in a subway tunnel that I that I have that uh, I told to someone recently and they were like, never tell me that story. That's the scariest story I've heard. So <laughs> but uh, the, uh, my family uh, likes to talk about when we went on a trip to Howe Caverns uh, in what, New York State. And we had a tour guide who talked in a t- complete monotone complete deadpan monotone the entire time and it, and it was clearly a scripted tour that's supposed to be given and there's a part where you have to blow into this cave formation and it makes a noise and he would go i have to do this or i'll lose my job and then he blew into it and as we were leaving i saw another tour going to that point and the tour guide was like now i have to do this or i'm gonna lose my job and i just remember being like that guy knows how to give a tour this guy but for years afterwards my fa- the, the the guy who gave us that tour was a was a family legend. We just wondered what was going on with him and and why he was doing that when he had no emotion whatsoever for for this cave. So it's not a crazy story, but it is a story that has been a part of my family lore involving a cave. Uh, Elliot, it's so good to meet you and such an honor to have you on the show. Thank Thanks. you so much for having me. I'm so excited let me, to do that. Let me turn it over to Erica next. Hi, Erica. Great to see you. Thank you for having me again. Uh, yes, my name is Erica Schultz. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, they, them, it, you know, whatever. Um, I, uh, you might know my work from Marvel, uh, uh, X-23, Deadly Regenesis, uh, Hallow's Eve, uh, Moon Knight, 
Um, I also have a series from Image called The Deadliest Bouquet. And I also have, uh, I did a series with Ben Jensen and uh, Anike at Aftershock as well called uh, My Lines and Blood. Um, craziest time in a cave. I haven't been in a lot of caves. Um, and I, I know that your rating is, you know, okay, but I don't know if I can tell the crazy basement stories from high school because uh, <laughs> they might be, they might, they might be a little racy. Uh, so. We've been racy plenty of times on this show. Yeah, I remember the, the last time it was, you. <laughs> I was going to say the last time the, the, the first question was Mary fuck kill. And it was, uh, and I, I talked about how I wanted to kill crystal because you know, the entire time, Oh, I'm a Royal. I'm this. And that's like, shut the hell up. Right? And crystal is back today. <laughs> I know. I know her. I am the queen of the elements. Uh, yeah, whatever. I hate crystal. Um, although I will say this, that when you go to, um, when you go to Wegmans, they have this like in their cheese section, they have this whole thing where they talk about like, how they have like their cheese ripening caves. And I kind of want to visit the cheese ripening caves and just sort of like live there with all the cheese. That so. sounds kind of magical, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so good to see you. Uh, and it's an honor to have Gregory back on the show as well. Hi, Greg. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm Gregory Wright. I continue to use he as my pronoun. Uh, you may know me from my my uh, half a second uh, appearance on MasterChef season four uh, from the at home cook along, in which I I, I cooked. Um, more more likely, you remember me from the thousands of comics I've colored for Marvel, DC, Image, Disney, Tops, uh, Dark Horse, uh, and uh, of course the greatest character ever created for you, specifically Lightbright. <laughs> Gregor and I got to talk about Lightbright. Gregor is also the writer of Silver Sable, which is uh, who we talked about his first time on the show. Uh, Gregor, do you have any Craig, uh, excuse me, do you have any cave stories? I do. I actually have two. Uh, one is the best cave thing I ever did was on our honeymoon. We went, uh, we were in Belize and we went on this rat rib, this canoe trip through a subterranean Mayan cave and looked at lots of um, Mayan, uh, uh, you know, uh, artifacts. But half of it was we had to lay down in the canoe because the, the water was here and, and the rocks were here. So we had to lay down in the canoe just to get through. So that was a, a little scary. Um, but more fun is there's a place in um, Virginia. It's called Luray Caverns. Uh, and when you go in there, they've got a, an, a room where they've attached these little hammers to all the stalag, uh, stalac, stalactites. And uh, you can play this organ and it taps them. And it plays the room musically. Um, That's so cool. That's that, that, that was pretty amazing. And you can get married there, so you can you know get married, and they can program it to play any music you want, and it plays the the cave. <laughs> uh, lastly, I am Chad Anderson. I use he him pronouns. I am a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, a, a novelist, a documentarian, uh, and the current host of the Great Malkin Laid podcast. I uh, I am freaked out by caves. I find them quite scary. Underground caves, I've taken a number of tours and I get a little claustrophobic, which is rare for me. But in my youth, we used to hike up to this uh, uh, cave called 40 Horse Cave in southeastern Idaho. It was not a very big cave. It had some sort of weird legend to it. But my memory of this cave, it's not very big. We'd hang out in it a little and then hike back down. But there was all this green watercress growing in uh, like a little pond nearby. 
And one of my aunts would like eat this watercress by the handful whenever we hiked up there. And one summer it did not end well. There was like hospitalization and major like diarrhea problems <laughs> and like all this stuff. And I, that's whenever I think of 40 horse cave, that's the, the memory that shows up in my brain now. So <laughs> if there's any listeners in Southeastern Idaho, if you make it to 40 horse cave, shout me out. <laughs> it's, uh, it's and and don't just start picking plants out of the out of the water. Oh. Yeah, yeah, maybe don't eat wild plants. That uh... <laughs> isn't that wasn't that that movie with explosive diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that movie that came out recently with uh, Daniel Day Lewis? It was like the last film that he did, and it had that twist about the mushrooms. Mm, I haven't seen it. Was that uh, in Phantom Thread? Right. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, uh, there's certain people you can't trust to prepare your breakfast or your dinner. That's, yeah. that's what you learn from it. Yeah. But Gregory can because he's on MasterChef. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just for a second, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, now, Ellie, I always ask my guests that are coming uh, the, the same question for, for my first question. I would love to hear a little bit about your origin story from comic book fan slash nerd into professional writer. Uh, I know this is a crazy time to be a writer, given the WGA strikes that are happening and ongoing. You were telling me before mm -hmm. we started, you've just been on the picket lines this morning, uh, but it's an honor to have you here. Uh, so tell me a little of your origin story, if you would. Thanks. Sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, I'll try to do it shortly. L listeners of the Flophouse will know that I, I can, if I, I'll use 10 words when one word will do. So I'll, I'll try to <laughs> make it short. But uh, I was always a reader. I, like I read early as a kid and I wrote stories just for fun early as a kid. And I, I knew when I was probably around eight or nine that I wanted to be a writer of some kind. And I was drawn to comic books, but I was always worried that they were going to be too violent for me. I was like, superhero comics in particular, I was always worried that they were going to turn out to be incredibly violent. So the only comics I read for a long time were like Archie comics. And then around, was it 1991, I guess, uh, I fell into a group of of other kids that were really into the Marvel Universe trading cards. It was when Marvel Universe Series 2 came out. And that was such an amazing gateway for me into superhero comics and the like non-Archie world of comics. And just being able to look at those cards and know to get a full sense of who the characters were very quickly. And that led me to handbooks, to the handbook of the Marvel Universe, which was even more of a like, oh good, I can figure all this out. And that led me to the comics themselves. And once I read them, I was like, oh, this is just like hitting and kicking and like lasers. It's not like, I thought I had this image in my head that, that superheroes were like ripping people's eyes out or like tearing their arms off. And it was so much less violent than I had, was afraid it was. And I just got, I fell, especially in, in the Marvel world into just wanting to know everything about that world and those characters and uh, that led out to other comics eventually. And now here's a, here's, now here's, a, stuff. here's a very weird full circle for you uh, moment for you. The episode that comes out immediately before yours, the uh, reunites Mike Carlin, Peter Sanderson and Elliot Brown, who worked on the original Marvel handbooks together. And yours That's is amazing. The episode after that. So it's, As it's did I. I edited that too. <laughs> I, I loved those so much. It was such a, thank you for doing it. Cause it was such a, that was such a valuable thing for me to not just figure out who the characters were and how they were related, but also to find out about stories that otherwise I wouldn't necessarily have known about because this was all, this was still in the world of pre the internet, pre having an app, pre a lot of books being reprinted. So there's me and my friends would have to go to the local comic book show at the mall where it was just vendors with back issues. And we'd have our list of issues that we were looking for because we wanted to know how a story from 10, 15 years ago ended because we, there's no way to find out otherwise. Uh, but the fa flash forward uh, many years 
uh, I'll to talk about how I got into writing comics that uh, I was a, I was very lucky to, uh, to out of college, start working at the daily show as a, as a, I was an intern there my last semester of college and working as a PA. And eventually I worked my way up to being a writer. And when I was a writer there for a little bit, I was working on something with Wyatt Snack, the comedian who was the course, who was a correspondent there at the time. And he was like, I'm supposed to do this show at this comedy theater called comic book club where they, I'm supposed to be a guest on it and talk about comic books. I don't really want to do it by myself. Like, will you just come with me and do it? Cause he, we were both, we would talk about comics all the time. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll do anything. I don't care. I'll talk to anybody about comic books or anything. And I came and they asked at one point, if you could write a comic book story, what would it be about? And I was saying, well, I've always been really curious about what happened to the Inuits that were worshiping Captain America when he was encased in ice and then Namor came along and threw him in water. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with like, this guy came along and picked up your God and threw him in the ocean and he went away. And uh, there was a, 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 a an assistant editor at Marvel named Tom Brennan was in the audience of the show. And he was like, we're doing an anthology right now that that book, that story could fit into if you want to do it. And I was like, yeah, definitely. And that was and uh, my first kind of story sale for them. And at that point, he, uh, Tom in particular, like kept kind of bringing me stuff saying like, we need a story. For, we need like an eight page story for this. Can you do something? Can you well, need, and uh, quickly, if anyone wants to find that story Elliot's talking about, it's the man of God story in the, in the age of heroes book. Uh, yeah. it's fun. It's really fun, uh, but keep going. Oh yeah. Thanks. And, uh, and, and they did a couple of humor books around then and that where that I contributed to and they, uh, and so that kind of made it possible for me to be, uh, to be writing comics not exactly professionally. I, I consider myself like a comic book like dilettante. Like I, I, I'm lucky enough to get to dabble in it, but uh, I, I don't do it professionally enough that I can say it's my career. Although at this point, I'm doing more writing for comics than I am for television because I'm on strike for television. So I guess I'm more, I'm a professional podcaster and then my second job is comics, I guess, right now. Uh, one of my favorites of your early stories features the Great Lakes Avengers versus the Asbestos Man, who is oh, yeah. one of the stupidest characters ever. I, th I think at that point, I think at that point, that was the Asbestos Man's second appearance in comics after appearing <laughs> once in the 1960s. In uh, was it Strange Tales? Was the one that had Torch solo stories in it? Mm -hmm. And yep. uh, I was. They gave me. They said we. They. Uh, they they gave me a couple of different villains that, that I was like, I wanted to use a villain that is barely ever appeared in the books so that I don't have to worry about continuity at all. And they gave me a couple of different characters. And I was like, that's the one I want to do. Cause he is, it has, and in that story, oh, it's so sad. He's, he's, uh, he's a fresh out of jail, but he has, he's a cancer survivor who is on an oxygen tank because he's been wearing an asbestos suit for too long. And it ends with more of a, <laughs> with more of a, like a, a, uh, an agreement or like an understanding than an actual fight. Uh, and that was one, I'm trying to remember what editor I worked with on that book, but that was a story where the first draft of the story that I handed in was really goofy and kind of slapsticky. And the editor pushed me to make it more, to have the characters kind of treat them more like people and less like cartoon characters. And I really appreciate that they did that. And I only wish I remembered who the editor was on that book. Uh, so that was in Fantastic Four Marvel Snapshots. I think your editor was Darren Shan, if I'm remembering. Oh, you know what? Maybe it was reprinted in that. I think that story was, it was originally it, a backup on, um, it was like Civil War Homefront or something like that. Okay, you know? okay. Fear fear Itself? Or Fear Itself Homefront. It was, I did, yeah. a, I did a number of stories where it was like stories that were backups in the anthology books related to big crossover events. And I was always like, how do I get into like a regular book? And then I... Uh, got to do Spider-Man and the X-Men, which is like a six-issue series. And then 
I was pitching another X series. And then my, the editors I was working with at Marvel left the company to work at other companies. And I was like, I have no one here. It's a, it's a, uh, comic books is a lot like, is a lot like Hollywood where if the people you knew leave a company, then the other people at the company are like, but we don't know you. Like what? Well, hold on a second. We're going to work with the people we know already. Uh, and for those of you that are wondering, why has it got to be asbestos man? There's also an asbestos lady and she came first. So it sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, uh, so your favorite work of mine, and I, I know you've gotten to write Wolverine. Uh, I love your superior looter story, which is hilarious as well. Oh, thanks. But my very favorite work of yours is, and something we've talked about on my show seven or eight times is uh, Spider-Man X-Men, uh, which is a six issue series right before the Secret Wars kind of blew up the Marvel Universe and everybody died for a minute. Uh, mm. Tell us how you got this book. And one of my specific questions here is how did you choose the characters that you wanted to use in this book? Because it's a wild bunch. <laughs> So, th so that one, I've, I was super lucky to be able to do that one. So um, th there was an editor at Marvel at the time make, named Mike Marks, who I I've since worked with on Maniac New York also. And he said, he said to me, so Wolverine's going to die. We want to do a series where it's Spider-Man and the X-Men. And Wolverine asked Spider-Man to be, before he died, he asked Spider-Man to be a teacher at, at uh, Xavier's. All you need to figure out it. Would you be interested in that? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I love Sp Spider-Man's the greatest character in fiction. And I love the X-Men characters. And uh, he goes, all you have to figure out is why Wolverine did it and what the story is and who the characters are. And I'm like, okay, so everything. So, so I have to figure <laughs> out everything in the book. And it, I turned it into like that Wolverine thought one of the students was a mole working for a, a bad guy. And, and I picked a bunch of characters who I had always liked from the, that kind of like Wolverine and the X-Men uh, young kids run and a couple other ones who I felt had not been used to their potential as much as I would like. It felt like there was a period where after, um, after they got rid of the, the, the consequences of M day, when there were, there were not very many mutants anymore. After that, they, they were like, now there's two men. Now there's mutants all the time. And it felt like they would just shovel in shovelfuls of new X-Men characters and then forget about them. And you'd have a character like Shark Girl, who I loved, who got a big buildup when she was first introduced. And then she would just kind of stand around in the background of panels. Or you'd have like Glob Herman, who's such a great visual, but he, they just kind of didn't do much with it. He was just kind of a doof. You know, they didn't do too much with him. And so it's a combination of who are characters that I think are great visuals that look really cool. Like if I was looking at a team shot, Glob Herman looks amazing. Eye Boy looks amazing. He's covered in eyes. You know, uh, the and who are characters that I feel like there's something to be done with them that's that's interesting. Like um, a character like No Girl, who's just a brain in a jar, basically. Like what there's a there's it seems like such an amazing concept for a character, but they didn't they, they had she hadn't really had her chance to go. And I wanted young characters that Spider-Man could kind of like um, could kind of disagree with that I, I saw the book as Spider-Man's ethic is if you have power, you have responsibility to use it to save people. And the X-Men's ethic at that point was we are an oppressed minority. We hang around our house and people attack us in our house. And <laughs> it bothered me at some at points that the X-Men weren't going out and doing things that I kind of grew up reading the nineties X-Men and the Claremont eighties work where it felt like the X-Men were constantly going around the world and they were always, and these, they were traveling through time, through space, and it felt like uh, for a while, X-Men stories involved a lot of sitting around the house arguing with each other. And uh, so Spider-Man, I wanted to come in and be like, go out, like save people. You should save people. And I have him have to recognize that it's easy for him to say that because when he takes his mask off, he can do anything, go anywhere. And for someone like 
Glob Herman or Rock Slide or Eye Boy or Shark Girl. Shark Girl less so because she can change shape. Or, or Ernst and Hellion. Or Ernst. Don't forget Ernst. Yeah, and Ernst is there, or Ernst where they they you, they can't just walk around. You know, they can't. They're they're instantly. It's kind of the difference between the Morlocks and the X Men in the older books, where it was like, well, yeah, if you take off your costume, you no one knows. But we're you know we're we're hideous. Except you know no one wants to see us. Um, and so I like the idea of them kind of like butting heads a little bit over their ethics of it. Uh, and those are characters that I felt like could make that case very, um, very strongly, you know. But at the same time, it was uh, the most exciting thing to me about it was coming up with team ups of Spider-Man villains and X-Men villains that could that could work as duos. And the, the one I regret I didn't get to do is I didn't get to do Mojo and Mysterio. And because Mysterio was being taken somewhere. And so I did Mojo and Chameleon, which didn't, was not quite as natural a fit. It's but still I, so fun though. I'm, I'm glad, and uh, I realized afterwards, I was, like, I was like, this book, I was like, this is gonna be a, these are big characters. Like this book will really raise my profile as a writer at Marvel. And it didn't particularly. And I'm like, because I should have written probably one six issue story that was very strong as opposed to my, my attitude at the time was like, I may never get to do this again. I'm going to pack as many stories into the six issues, six stories. Like uh, they're going to be constantly doing different things. And uh, that I, uh, at the end, I think that might've been, might've been uh, too much for, for some audiences that kind of every issue they're in a different part of the universe and they're dealing with different villains. But I say this, uh, I say this with affection, your, your scripts for these are pretty word dense. You've got yes. a lot of speech bubbles on the pages, but almost every panel is an, uh, is like a laugh out loud moment. Well, that's, that's... The book opens with storm being so annoyed with Spider-Man. A couple <laughs> issues later, she's like, trying to try to call him. She's like, Oh my God, even his voicemail is annoying. <laughs> like every moment of your book makes me laugh. And all of the characters get big moments in it. Uh, we've got to talk about the Stegron Sauron team up, but if you want to, oh, sure. you want to talk about your humor or or your your uh, word choice or, or oh, your well, word choice for these, that's, that's, I'd I'll just say I, I something I recognize is that it is way more word word denser than it was, but it was partly that feeling of like I may never get to do this again. I'm going to shuffle it all in and wanting each panel to be funny or affecting and not letting it breathe. And now when I write books, I'm like, oh, I don't need so much story. I'll just let this breathe a little bit, not breathe as much as some modern comics go where I feel like you can read a whole book and you're like, nothing happened in this, in this book at all. But, uh, I mean, and as an example, I'm, I'm going to toss out an aside. It's issue one, Spider-Man's teaching these new kids and they're like, oh my God, you're so boring. And he's like, you must be responsible. A BAMP teleports in the room and randomly pulls Spider-Man's shirt off. <laughs> and, uh, then Storm walks in and she's like, why are you shirtless in front of the students? And he's like, oh, let's go to the danger room guys. I mean, the whole, it's, it's hilarious. The whole book is so great. Thank you. Uh, it's I, I had so much fun. I had so much fun writing it, and I'm, I really like that. Um, you you recognize that the characters each kind of have their little their own little arc or lesson. I wanted to. It was part of it was hoping hoping after that I might afterwards be able to work with some of these characters again, which I unfortunately didn't get to do. But wanting to kind of push them. What I really want to do, which Marvel wouldn't let me do, was I wanted Shark Girl to change her name to Shark Woman, and I wanted to have a scene where Spider Man is like, when I started, I was a teenager. I call myself Spider Man, like. You you you've got potential. Like you should set set this in. Be ambitious. And Marvel was like, you cannot change the name of the character. This is owned by the company. I was like, really? This character nobody's doing anything with. Like, but then I I, I had the opposite effect where at the one of the end one of the issues, uh, Rachel Summers discovers Spider Man's secret identity, and I knew that I was going to have her have it be removed from her mind in the next issue. But my editor did not, and so and my editor was like, that's cool that you're pushing the envelope, but we cannot have new characters learning Spider-Man's secret identity. 
And I was like, don't worry, in the next issue, it's going to get it's going to get taken care of. But I was like, oh, this is I never realized how much freedom I have that they really don't know what's happening in this book until I hand the script in, which is something that I didn't appreciate as much as I should have at the time. You know, talk to me about the Sauron Stegron team up. Well, they're the two. They're the two dinosaur guys. I mean, like a, as, as like a, said like a buddy office comedy for these two. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sauron. I should also mention. I know Sauron is not technically a dinosaur. He's a pterosaur, which is you know not not a dinosaur orthodoxly. But uh, that the I, it just got to me that the I don't think there'd ever been a story between the two dinosaur villains. And I love dinosaurs. I was a big dinosaur kid growing up. I still love dinosaurs. When my younger son told me recently that dinosaurs were boring, it was maybe it was the hardest thing I've ever heard from him. It was just it really hurt me and. Stegron, and it felt like the dynamic seems, I mean, like, I remember so clearly seeing Sauron for the first time as a character and thinking how cool he seemed to me. And seeing Stegron and seeing how uncool that character seemed, even though he should be cool. He's a Stegosaurus man. But uh, so it kind of, that the dynamic of the two of them where Sauron is very much the alpha and Stegron is the beta and Sauron is openly making fun of the way Stegron talks and the and that they... It just felt very funny to me that it felt like natural that these characters should work together, but also natural that they should not really get along that well. And even the two of them recognize at some level, we have to work together because we're both dinosaur people, but we don't really like each other that much. You know, we don't, we don't really, it's, there was a, um, I used to think about uh, the, if, if you were working at a, at a place where, if you're, if you're an immigrant to the United States and you don't speak English particularly well, and you're working at a place and there's one other person who speaks your your native language. You have to talk to them and be friends with them, even if you don't get along. And and what a what an annoying situation that must have to be to be like, oh, the one person that I can speak to fluently. Like I cannot stand them. And that's Sauron and Stegron to me. Where it's like finally another dinosaur person. But I Sauron is like I cannot take this guy. Like I can't like I can't deal with it. You know. There's a lot of moments where Sauron's like the world will be ruled by Sauron and he's like and Stegron oh yes yes and Stegron uh but we have to talk about the infamous panel that has lived the the most famous thing you ever did at Marvel Comics yeah this <laughs> is what's going to be on my my tombstone someday i think one panel yeah. that went viral and is so well remembered where Spider-Man says you can rewrite DNA on the fly and you're using it to turn people into dinosaurs. But with tech like that, you could cure cancer. And Sauron says, but I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. <laughs> How has this meme affected your life? <laughs> the, I think, well, one, it's it, I've gotten so much kind of pride from it, but also annoyance because it's like far more people have seen the meme than ever read the book or know what book it's from. And <laughs> I saw recently someone had posted it, they had translated, someone who didn't speak English translated into another, or does, I guess, because they translate it, but someone whose who's native language in the language had translated into that language and posted it, and they had watermarked it with their name because they had done the translation, and I, and someone added me on Twitter, and I was like, I was like, dude, you, can, like, you can't take credit for, for this panel that you didn't write or draw, you know, and the, the, it was, that was something, but at the same time, I felt so much joy because I've, I've been working in comedy for a long time, and I feel like I understand joke mechanics pretty well. And I'm, I'm actually writing a book right now for the University of Chicago Press, very, very impressive about joke writing and the craft of joke writing. And that one joke, when I wrote, usually I can, if I write a joke, I can pinpoint, here's how the mechanics work that make that a funny joke. And the, and that was one of those jokes where I was like, I think this is funny. I don't understand why. Like, I'm not quite sure why it works as a joke. And I hope someone else thinks it's funny. And I remember writing that joke and being like, I hope somebody else likes this joke. Like I can't, it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly why I think it's funny, but it, yeah, it really took on a life of its own. And especially 
we live in a world where there are so many people in positions of power who are living what I would call the Sauron lifestyle in that point where they could do a lot to help people, but they would rather not do a lot to help people. They'd rather do their own personal thing. And so it's taken on this usage as every time like a billionaire sends a funds to send a spaceship into space with them on it, then someone posts that panel with their face on it or end up. And it's, I'm like, yeah, I, I like that this is being used in a way that I, that like is making a point that I think is a, a valuable point. So it's exciting to write a joke and then have other people find a, a real meaning in it that they can purpose for, to say something, you know, especially because they're saying something that is, that I agree with too. If they, if it was, I feel like if they were using it to, uh, if they, uh, I don't know, if they stuck like Joe Biden's head on Sauron and he's like, I don't want to protect people. I want to, I want to invest in clean energy or whatever. Then I'd be like, well, I don't approve of that. That I, that I don't agree with. I'm glad he's investing in clean energy. Like that. That's so. I'm glad that it's being used in a way I agree with. But it's a. But it's a funny thing. It shows that you really can't guess what you can't guess ahead of time what thing that you do is going to particularly resonate with people. You know, there's you can have a hunch sometimes, but if you ask me what's the moment in that in that series that's really going to hit with people, I was like, I'd be like, I don't know. I don't think it's this one. This is the joke that I'm not sure if it's going to work at all. Listeners, if you have not read this series, you should. It's amazing. There is more than one book called Spider-Man X-Men, but this book uh, is Spider-Man and the X-Men. <laughs> I think it's, it's this one's Spider-Man and the X-Men. Spider-Man X-Men is a pretty fun book. The, the one where it's fun. like different decades. That is a fun yeah, book. Yeah. We and the, the art earliest. is great. We covered the earliest one on my book. Uh, uh, it was uh, it was really, or excuse me, on my show. It was really fun. Uh, this book features one issue. We get the Sinister Six, who are some of the worst villains ever, <laughs> combining and calling themselves <laughs> the Sinister Six. And then the next issue, we get Mr. Sinister launching a team called Sinister's Six. Uh, the, the parallel and the humor is fun. <laughs> we also get Deathbird as a symbiote, which is just a crazy... I, I love Deathbird. It's an amazing... <laughs> It's yeah, I, it was because it was such a it was like what are combinations I can think of of throwing characters together and it's like okay Deathbird and Simi and at the time Deathbird was pregnant in space and so it was like to have her have a have venom powers was very funny and to the there was a yeah it was just I just had so much fun working on it you know and see the, uh, uh, see the Summers family episode I did for a conversation about Deathbird's mysterious egg baby with Vulcan we'll, oh we'll I'll have to listen to that one I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> Um, do you follow the current continuity at all, Elliot? I've been trying to. I'm my life as a as a parent of two children uh, is uh, is a it makes it difficult for me to go to the shop regularly. So I've been reading on the Marvel Unlimited app, which means I'm months behind anyway. And I have so much trouble keeping the current continuity straight because it feels like every time I read an X Men issue, there the Quiet Council is talking about something. And it feels like I've seen the conversation they're having multiple times. And I just, and like, there's, and they're, the biggest thing is that like, I wanted to get off that Island. If my issue with, uh, if my issue with the 90, with the, with the, the X-Men comics of 15 years ago was they never left the house. They were just getting attacked at their house all the time. The fact that the current X-Men are like just always hanging out on a beach and getting attacked. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I just want you to leave that. Be and surely there must be, there must be some X-Men character who doesn't want to hang out on this beach all the time drinking and wants to, you know, wants to do something else with their lives. It's a, so I've been having trouble keeping track of the continuity, to be honest. I have an odd continuity question for you. And this is uh, one of the few deep continuity ones I want to ask. The character Ernst was originally hinted to be, after Grant Morrison's run on the X-Men, the embodiment of Cassandra Nova, 
placed in a like old lady young body but the editorial kind of took it in a different direction were you aware of the cassandra nova connection when you picked up this character because you're kind of the only writer who's ever done anything with ernst well that's and i surprised and if you read the book with that mind, I, that was exactly the thinking that I had for the character also. I had heard that that was Grant Morrison's plan. I thought it was a really cool idea, this idea that Cassandra Nova's mind had been placed in a clone body and that the power of, of her mind was aging that body faster. Like the uh, like the kids in Akira. They're those little government kids who are all look like old people because their bodies can't contain the power inside of them. And so Mr. Sinister has this line about like, oh, it seems like you were constructed, you know, or something like that. Like that was me hinting at that she was she was a clone with that mind, but that it was not the power was there. But and that when she, whenever she does something with her strength, it's always off panel. And Spider Man's like, I missed it. And the idea in my mind was, she's so mentally powerful that she is affecting things physically, but she doesn't understand that's what she's doing. So she thinks she's she's super strong, but really it's telekinesis. And when she punches a wall down, it is her mind a split second before her fist hits the wall, knocking that wall down. And I wanted to do a book that I was going to call X Kids. Uh, where the where the these some of these characters are essentially become kind of like runaways and are a, like kind of a superhero gang. And I was gonna go. I was would really love to have gone more into that idea of like who she was and where she came from. I thought it was such a cool idea, but then they yeah, Marvel editorial I think was not didn't love that because they want to do other things with those characters. You know, as I, it happens. I wondered if that was your take on Ernst, and I'm thrilled to hear that it was because that's what I read in the text. Uh, here's a quick update on your mutant kids, if you would like them. Yeah, Ernst, what's going on with them? Because I, I there's there's too many. I can't keep track of them anymore. Ernst has not had a lot of time. Rockslide on Krakoa, you can get resurrected, but Rockslide died heroically in Otherworld, which meant he was unable to be resurrected normally. So now there's a character walking around called Wrong Slide because he came back with his mind kind of off, and he okay. Kind of, he kind of doesn't know who he is. It's like he he's like from another world and doesn't know how he fits. But he's also become kind of like a sage-like character in the books. iBoy has had major upgrades. He was part of the detective team X Factor. He can see all kinds of shit. Uh, he can see magic. He can see change. He can see resonance in people. Uh, all these kinds of things along the spectrum. So Leah Williams did some amazing work with him. Yeah, I like that. That's a great way to use that character. Uh, Glob Herman has had a huge, he's a, he's a fan favorite. A lot of times there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of, he's, he's a voice of reason. He's a voice of humor, but they've also given him kind of a tragic backstory. And he's one of those characters that just has a heart of gold that a lot of people love. No girl in Charlie Jane Anders recent, uh, new mutants, lethal legion was resurrected in her own new body. Uh, she is called Sarah Bella. Now she has an exposed brain at the top of her head. And she's had a love story with the incredible transgender character uh, uh, Escapade. So oh, the two okay. of them are a couple, and it's so cute. Shark Girl has had some features as a Brazilian or Latina character in a few places, like in the Marvel Pride anthologies or in the Marvel uh, uh, community, uh, Comunidades anthologies. Uh, not not a lot of work done with her, but she has had some really good moments. Uh, so I'm glad they're I'm glad they're doing those anthologies, but it makes I always there's there I read them and I'm like I wish these characters I wish these were like main books I wish that the it was that these characters were getting like real like book stories and not not just kind of being taken out for anthologies uh, to like you know showcase uh, the different types of characters. It's like a Shark Girl was a character that I just always thought had so much potential and I wanted her to be a big X Men character. You know, 
And then Hellion is a huge fan favorite. He has not had a lot of stories in the recent years, uh, but he is in, he's on Krakoa and kind of in the back and fans are always clamoring for more. So your, uh, your little darlings are growing up. They, they still exist. Out there. <laughs> it's so sweet. And to be honest, it's like the things that have happened with them are not that different from what I would have done with them anyway. So it shows you how, how, uh, except for the earned stuff. So I guess it's, uh, I guess they didn't need me. Those kids, they grew up. They grew up so fast. They're on their own. They leave the nest of that one miniseries. Oh. Speaking of Spider-Man X-Men, uh, Erica recently got to write the Spider-Man annual in which we got to see Madeline Pryor featured and oh, some yeah. really fun stuff with Hallow's Eve there. What was it like for you to work with Maddie, Erica? Um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I had to do research more on Maddie uh, just because that's where... Um, that's where Hallow's Eve gets her abilities from, uh, from Maddie's Limbo Magic. So I had to do a deep dive even before I started uh, writing the Hallow's Eve uh, miniseries. It's a little um, complicated. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a little complicated. It takes the finger of some random demon, stabs her in the chest with it, and all kinds of weird stuff happen. Um, but it was fun because I, I w really wanted to wrap up the, uh, you know, at the end of the miniseries with Hallow's Eve, uh, she promises Ben that she's gonna get him out, and so I wanted to wrap that up and uh, and show that she really she made her her best efforts. Um, it I, I will say it's weird writing Peter because uh, I don't know it's I'm gonna get fired for saying this. I I think Spider Man is a great character. I think Peter Parker is an idiot. <laughs> um, and I just I just mm, think Peter. Mm. I think Peter is supposed to be this like absolute genius and yet he does everything wrong. And he's like the biggest idiot sometimes. And it just, it gets to me. So I, I was, I was happy to be able to write some of that stupidity that I think that Peter sometimes shows. And it's, it's usually when it comes to relationships, you know, because Peter is just so um, he's so oblivious to the, genuine true love that um that eve aka janine godby and ben have and you know they are true ride or die and even though peter has accepted the fact that he and mj are no longer together that is not something that ben or janine are ever going to accept you know they have to be together and and so you know i i i got a chance to write that in a little bit when you know she says to him, like, you know, how many times have you fought for, for MJ? And he's like, oh, well, we're not together anymore. She's like, that's not the point. The point is, is that, you know, you've gone out on a limb for somebody that you love. Don't, you know, don't denigrate me. Don't, don't scold me for trying to do the same thing. Um, so, so that was, that was fun to, to give Peter a little, little pop <laughs> that he deserves. Um, I love your willingness to say these characters that everyone loves, like Emma Frost, Peter Parker, and Crystal. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Emma Frost can get thrown into a volcano for all I care. I know, I know, it's so horrible, and I'm probably never going to write an X book ever with it. You know, but I, I mean, I have a good excuse for that. I mean, having I was the lip sync animator on on Astonishing X Men. And having to consistently listen to her over and over and over again and watch her little face 
And then sometimes, sometimes she was drawn with flesh tone lips and sometimes she was, and, and this is something Gregory would agree, you know, you know, sometimes she's drawn with flesh tone lips. Sometimes she's drawn with the, the silver lips and just, you know, just the constant burning into my soul of her. I was like, oh, you wench. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm horrible comics person. I know. Gregory, we're going to transition into Hidden Years in a moment, but we got to go into this a little bit in your episode with Jason Liebig uh, when we started this journey on my show. Uh, the beginning of Hidden Years, the, the energy at Marvel was a lot different than at the end of Hidden Years, it seems. There was a lot of changes happening in the company, president shifting, people being let go. Do you want to talk a little bit about the climate at the company when this series was ending? And particularly, uh, you were not the colorist on these last couple issues, except on the covers. What happened? Well... Yeah, so there was a lot of change, including, you know, our, our pal Jason. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if they gave him the, the boot or if he said, I've had enough of this shit and left. Um, it could have been both, you know, because, you know, Jason was quite outspoken, which, you know, was a lot made of his, uh, the show we did with him a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, basically, you know, uh, our, our good pal, Bill Jemis, um, uh, he, he appointed Joe Casada uh, to be editor in chief. And, you know, first thing that Joe did, and, and he was right, is the books looked like absolute shit because they were, the all the books were late. They were using the cheapest possible separator they could find to, to, you know, take our guides and turn them into crap. And then they printed them so poorly that, I mean, even if you, when you look at these, they're, they're so oversaturated. They just don't look, they just look like there's something wrong. Um, so what they decided to do was, well, we can fix the color by, um, we'll fire all the colorists. Um, and what we'll do is we'll just go behind all the editors, everybody's back, and we'll give it to these studios that we know. But we'll tell everybody we're going to give them a, a chance to bid for the books, but they didn't. Uh, and they just booted us all off the books. So we all got these, I got like five phone calls from editors telling me that I was no longer on the book and that it, they, they, there was nothing that they could do about it. But the good news was on, on Hidden Years, because there was only three issues left, you know, Lisa Hawkins, uh, who was the assistant or she became the editor. She said, I convinced them to just let you finish the book. And I was like, great, because I knew that the, the FF stuff was coming and I'm having an opportunity to color, you know, John Byrne doing uh, Fantastic Four was such a cool thing, especially getting to color the thing. Uh, and then she called me back and the, comp the separation company that was doing a terrible job on our stuff, they had to make sure that they gave them enough work. Um, to fulfill their contract. And since they'd taken all the work away from them and given it to the studios, they figured, well, a couple of books that we just don't care about anymore, we'll give them those books to do the color on as well. So mm -hmm. I got fired from it twice. Um, and Lisa had, you know, but Lisa had said, I'm having you do all the covers from now on. She was furious about it. Editor, um, uh, editor Lisa Hawkins. Yeah. Lisa Hawkins, yeah. So yeah, that was the that was the thing, you know. The the color looked bad. We were lied to, uh, and then they they just they went behind everybody. I mean, it was company wide um, that changes were coming. And and Bill Jemis thought he was Mister Know It All, and he was not making things very happy for anybody. Um, as as Jason, uh, you know, gave us some really good stories. You know, every time Jason would say, "Hey, maybe that's a dumb idea," you know, and Bill Jemis would you know actually threaten people. And I, I wish I'd been on staff at the time. 
Do you remember what VLM Studios was? This is the coloring company that's credited with these two issues. They did. Around they were this company in, in Ireland. They were an Irish company um, that was mostly doing very cheap steps. Now you got to understand the books. The books were all late. So if you were an X Men title, unlike but not the Hidden Years that made a lot of money, they would shove all the other work aside and do that book and put all their best people on it. So even if your book was on time. It just kept getting pushed lower and lower until ah, it's due tomorrow. So then they would hand the pages out to, uh, you know, 22 different people, not really pay attention to what they did and just shove it out. So, you know, we got the, the lowest quality of stuff because, you know, you can probably notice that their, their actual separations look a bit better on the ones they did because they were trying to see if they could get more work. Um, so that kind of irritated me, but it's still print. It's still printed way oversaturated, um, but they put a little more effort into the the, the color that they did. Um, but uh, I don't like the, this. This stuff is always really fascinating. Uh, Elliot, uh, I want to ask you one more. Question. If I noticed when the color has changed, I did. I, this this is it, I'd never heard about this. And I remember at the time seeing like feeling that the books had like seeing how many. Anyway, I remember at the time reading these books. And uh, not the hidden years, because uh, I was on a John Byrne uh, diet at the time. I guess when those books were coming out originally. But the but I remember when suddenly it seemed like all the coloring was being done by studios or organizations rather than people. I remember seeing that yeah. change in the credits and that the coloring shifted in this way that felt very, yeah, that was not a didn't seem like an improvement. You know, it's really interesting to hear that's why that was happening. Well, some so, of it was because you know suddenly you know the, the studios did a very nice job. It was just different, and nobody chose them for their books. Normally, you know, editors choose who's going to be on the book. And a lot of times the creators themselves, you know, cause uh, both John Byrne and uh, Tom Palmer had asked for me on the hidden years. Mm -hmm. You also give coloring guides a lot of times too. The well, that's what we were doing. Do me, guides, at that yeah. time we were doing color guides. Um, uh, now the other thing was all of us were ready to take over and do all of the sets. They wouldn't let us. They just because they, they just went behind everybody's back and just handed it over to the studios who then, you know, they had to try to mesh with the way because that's and VLM tried to kind of use similar colors that I was using because I could look and I went, oh, they, they've got my because they had all my palettes um, that they've been using. So they just used my palettes. So it's it doesn't it's not a big shift, but stuff. Uh, it, it looks different, but you know, it was, it was very aggravating, you know, cause we were all basically slammed by you're out of work. You know, we'll have to twist in the wind. And what was really aggravating is we are, it was our work that was getting ruined. So we're the ones that got punished, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and if you look at the credits for, I think for issue 20, Bill Jemis actually gets a credit as president. It's like the only time nobody gives the president credit on their, their, their comic book. And it's like, really? That you're giving this guy a credit? Here, look, I've ruined a, a whole bunch of people's lives. Let me have a credit. I still remember, and I shared this with you in our episode, that moment where I made the connection of, wait, wait, the guy that did Silver Sable is the colorist. Wait, oh, my God. Like, it was uh, it was a trippy. It's so fun uh, knowing you now, uh, Gregory. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have you here today. Uh, Elliot, I want to have I have one more question for you, but I just have to throw out a mention. The, a book we will not cover today is you did a beautiful story uh, with Wolverine and Vampire Mom Jubilee. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that, that annual book. That's so good. Uh, so everybody Thanks. needs to go check that out. And you yep. have little Shogo in it, who is now a dragon. Did you know Shogo's a dragon? Yeah, Shogo's a dragon. Now I remember. <laughs> that. I mean, which is probably that. It always felt weird that 
they would bring a baby with them on adventures. Uh, and of course it's comics. So everyone, no one is aging, but the baby has to kind of age a little bit, but, and eventually that means that the Shogo would be the same age as Jubilee since Jubilee always has to be stuck at like early twenties, which is, it's a very weird scale, but that, that book, that Wolverine book, I was, uh, they asked me to do that. I think because they just needed someone to do a Wolverine annual. And I was a new parent at the time. And I had been doing some work with, um, with caregivers for for wounded veterans coming back from from the multiple wars that we had going on at the time and so i found this like i'm like this wolverine annual that's just supposed to be about like him and jubilee before he dies in a couple months like i'm using so much more from my actual life in this than i've ever done before in a in a comic book like this is the this story about like a, a feral mutant with claws in his hands and this vampire lady and their baby that go camping like this is i'm using more in this story uh in the characters than i've ever done personally before so it was a, uh, it was that was a fun one to work on and the and uh i was trying to remember who the artist was on that the art was beautiful on that one uh oh i have it pulled up but i feel uh, terrible that i'm I feel like i'm like forgetting all the names of everyone i've worked with which oh, i mean is this, is, this is a little while ago it's okay <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm going to transition into the hidden years content really quickly, but I, I, I would love to see you on another title. I love your writing. I, all three of you, I think are incredible writers, but I could have read Spider-Man and the X-Men for like a hundred issues and been oh, happy. I, I wish we I could have done it. I wish I could have done it longer. Yeah. It was a, uh, had, it was so much fun to write. We also had Sarah Brunstad on my show, who's a Marvel editor now, and she, unbidden, mentioned this book as one of her favorites. So people oh. remember this more than you realize. It's a, it's okay. a really powerful and lovely. She book. should hire me to do something. That would be great. <laughs> Reach out and be like, "Hey, was that the great bucket list?" What was it like for you to revisit this final two crazy issues of The Hidden Years? That's a question for all three of you. Uh, I know, uh, again, Gregory and Erica, you've been on the show with me uh, recently for this series, but what was it like to jump into these crazy stories? Uh, Elliot, do you want to take that first? Uh, sure. So this was, so X-Men Hidden Years was a book that I did not read at the time, and I'm not quite sure why, because it, it was right up my alley. And the, I think it was because I, I was, yeah, I think it was because I was, I was off John Byrne for a little bit. I, like John Byrne, his, his uncanny work, uncanny X-Men work, I think is great. I love his Fantastic Four run. And then there was a period where, uh, for whatever reason, the stories he was doing on different books were just not quite gelling with me. And so I had started reading it not too long ago. And when you asked me to be on the podcast, I'm like, okay, this means I'm going to finish it. I'm going to read the whole arc and the, you know, the whole series. And it's just so, like, I feel like this is what, I feel like he may have had the experience that I had with Spider-Man and the X-Men, where he was just like, I, all this stuff I wanted to do about the X-Men characters and the Marvel world before I was working in it. I want to do those stories now. And so there's just so much going on. And so much of the book is the characters telling us what's going on because it's moving so fast. And yeah, it was like, I, you know, I, it was a, I, there are times I was getting whiplash where, especially in these, in these issues where the mole man is like, I've got this trap next scene. That trap doesn't exist anymore. We're, he's doing <laughs> something different now. And I was like, wait, you, you're setting something up. We're onto a different thing now. And with these issues, uh, it had been a long time since I read the Fantastic Four issues that it intersect. So I went back and reread those. And I was like, oh, yeah, John Byrne's really pulling a lot from those Fantastic Four issues. But he's but the idea that he's like, hey, you didn't see it in Fantastic Four, but Professor X was involved in this whole adventure. But it's like he was invisible, so you didn't see it. It was just a very funny way for him to – it's like that – Um, there's that – what's it? There's a Doctor Strange comic where he goes back in time in his astral form to when the Fantastic Four are in Egypt. And but then also like, the West Coast Avengers do that later. Yeah, and also the West Coast. So it's like, how many characters were secretly in this story? <laughs> like, 
It's so good. Uh, Gregory, what was it like to, for you to revisit these issues after all this time? Well, it was a lot more fun to read them now because, you know, I've, I've healed from my being furious over being taken off of the issues. Um, but, you know, it's, it's so funny because I'm getting I'm so used to people taking their time with comic book stories now. And back then we were we were doing, you know, kind of what Elliot was doing with his story, trying to see cram as much stuff as we can in there because we'll never get to do it again. So I'm reading this and, you know, it, it, it's moved so fast that, you know, you don't really get a chance to enjoy anything. It's like, it just kept moving so fast. And if I kind of feel like he was racing to the finish, you know, it's like, I want to get these 20 things in, but I only have space for five, but I'm sticking them in anyway. And I'll, I'll find some way to do it. Um, so yeah, that was for me. I was like, wow, you know, the pacing is so much different than, you know, the pace. I mean, today, some of the pacing is so glacial, I can barely stand it. Um, but yeah, it was, the, there's so much happening. And, and I did what Ellie did. I had to go back and go, did he really dovetail these into the, these other issues? And he does. Um, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, when you come from the world of Marvel Universe, where, you know, you edit this stuff, where we were continuity junkies, uh, at the, you know, working with Grunewald on that stuff. So, you know, we would check this kind of stuff all the time. Um, but yeah, Byrne was good. He was very good with that. He, he, he actually knows all of his comic book history really, really well. Yeah. yeah. Um, which was the entire uh, impetus for doing the series was, Hey, there's, there's a chunk of time. We didn't, there, nobody has really done anything with cause they had, I guess they had switched to the, the, the new team. Um, and that's, that was the whole Genesis of the project. And they let, they kind of let him, as long as it ended where it needed to end, he, they let him just kind of go because he really didn't get edited from this. I wish it had ended. I wish the last issue had ended with them on their way to figure out what's going to, to investigate Krakoa. That would have been the perfect ending. I feel like maybe he sure. would have gotten if maybe if he had gotten a few more issues, he would have he would have ended it there. Like because that's and then you, and then giant size can pick up right from there. That would be yeah. But a. I had I had a similar thought, uh, Erica. What was it like for you to revisit this these issues? It, it, maybe it was you visiting them for the first time, actually. Well, um, I had read a couple of them when they first came out, but I hadn't read the entire twenty two issue run at the time. Um, but like Elliot was saying, they're very dense in terms of uh, this not just storyline, but also this idea of having these characters basically telling you everything that happened. Um, and I was a fan of Byrne's work when he was working with Claremont um, uh, on X-Men um, back in the in the 80s and 70s. And I, I really, I thought it was interesting, but also because, I mean, it's kind of a love letter to Adams as well. Mm-hmm. And I worked at Continuity Studios, so like there was a like there was this weirdness where i was like oh my god like this is i could see and i worked on batman odyssey and the first x-men and some of neil's uh other work and i was like i can really see where neil and john byrne were like the same person in this in this area with you know just the sheer amount of you know 10 pounds of story in a five pound bag kind of thing um and and I think it's interesting. I I don't know if it pulls it off every time. I think sometimes it might be a little too much. Um, but I tend to be very lean in in terms of my storytelling and stuff. So so that could just be a matter of style. Yeah. But um, but I mean, it it ends on a happy note. It ends on a birthday party. So. 
jumping into a, a, on my own journey that, that, that was the oh sorry just to say that was the craziest thing at the end when they're like beast you turn 20 you're the first one of us i was like wait these characters were 19 the entire series like they're <laughs> they're just that's the the issue with the x-men partly has always been that they look like i mean they look like adults where with adult bodies that are meant for you know fantasy and so the idea that they're all in their late teens, I had completely forgotten. By There's the end, a brilliant was- moment written by Steve Fox recently talking about Jubilee, where Jubilee's talking to Prodigy, who's a character that debuted about 20 years after her. And uh, Prodigy says something like, we're basically the same age. And she's like, yeah, but in X-Men years, which is like decades, is really funny. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, when I finished, this this show started with the Silver Age. We got to the end of the Silver Age. And then I had to assemble a database of all the stuff that happens in between X-Men 66 and Giant Size number one. And we've dealt a lot uh, with that on the show. We're going to continue to do so. I I sat down and thought, should I just do Hidden Years in like one episode? It'll just be me and I'll say everything that happens. And I thought, no, there's too much that happens here. So this is my 12th episode doing Hidden Years content. I feel like I've got a (laughs) master's degree in the Hidden Years now. And it's been fun. Also, I'm very, very happy to be moving forward to new content because the X-Men had a lot of shit going on right after that book was canceled when you stack up all the modern continuity that's been placed in the past. The X-Men are, I mean, Marvel Marvel is is great at doing this anyway, but the X-Men especially, it's like if there is a cranny in their history that something is not filling, a story will show up that will fill that story, that, that cranny. Like there's no, there's no holes allowed. There's no unanswered sometimes questions Sometimes in interesting ways. Like what about the guy who saw Captain America get tossed into the ice? And sometimes yeah, yeah. in interesting ways. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes uh, it's let just like, like. Hey, remember when there was this uh, this bird lady that was hanging out with the X-Men for a little mm. bit? You don't remember? That's fine. Don't worry about it. Okay, so two preemptive announcements. Number one, this issue does, or these two issues do cross over with Fantastic Four number 102 through 104 from the early 1970s. All three of those issues are a Magneto Submariner story, which will be featured on my show later this year in November. So we will get there. As uh, my friend Seth Martell, who does the art and tech for my show, uh, asked, in order to celebrate the Hidden Years, Chad, and Seth and I have done this a number of times, is there a story you want to write that will help wrap it up? What's the story we need? And I had to sit with this for a while. And as much as I dislike this character, the story we needed was what happened to Avia, who was the character through the whole series that never got anything. So as we release this, be prepared for a three-page, not in continuity, Avia story that will give you the story about Avia that you needed. And then I can lay her to rest forever because I don't like her very much. (laughs) Why don't you like Avia? I, I don't like how that she's a plot device. She's a weird Muppet lady who never does anything. She gets kidnapped, tossed around, poisoned, pinned to a wall, and then thrown back into the Savage Land. There's no point to her. I uh, I, I just, she I don't She saves like Warren's life. I mean, kind of. <laughs> and there's this weird... They get tossed in a storm and then picked up by fishing trawlers and they pin her to a wall. <laughs> she never does anything. And there's this weird kind of nudge to the idea that maybe there's going to be some kind of romance or attraction between the two of them. Between like it's kind of, yeah. and at this end, which is, which to me feels only like John Byrne turning against Candy Southern, one of the greatest characters in the X-Men universe. Uh, who's <laughs> like, who's like, I'll be in an adventure. I don't care. I don't have powers, whatever. I'm a, I'm, I'm 19. I don't care. But uh, it feels like a very, the, the whole, it feels like one of those characters who is there for a purpose, but the purpose never comes up. Uh, Candy Southern is wildly popular right now because of Connor Goldsmith's Cerebro episode on her, but 
Candy Southern is named after the original smut book, Candy by Terry Southern. Oh, we're I didn't a, realize that. that we're sense. doing a Candy Southern smut episode on my show in September. So be prepared. <laughs> it's going to be crazy. <laughs> it's so I'll have to listen to it because I remember so well reading the, uh, the the Dark Phoenix saga, the reprint, because it was one of the few storylines you get reprinted in a book when I was when I was first getting into comics and Candy Southern shows up for like one scene in one and I was like who is this like what is this what is this what's her what's her story I wrote the encyclopedia on her I love her so much uh okay we're gonna delve into our final hidden years episode I'm so happy to be here thank you to the three of you for being here with me it's the final two issues of our series. There are four plot lines I have to introduce briefly. So previously on X-Men The Hidden Years, and only four, not six or eight, which is nice. Number one, there is a group called The Promise, led by Tobias Messenger, who's a powerful telepath who yells in your brain. And his deal is that he has built a massive construct filled with suspended animation tanks. He goes into suspended animation for 10 years at a time, pops out to see if the world is better for mutants, recruits someone, maybe against their will, and then tosses them in suspended animation for 10 years. And then he's been doing Doing this for a while and he has a little group assembled that he calls the promise on his last outing he forcibly recruited lorna dane and havoc and he tried recruiting angel but one of the members of the promise lucy robinson who's a blonde woman with the mutant power to command people to do stuff uh pulled angel away and tried to find her former family but now her kid's older than she is and she's very sad about it plot line number two Cyclops, Iceman, Beast, and Marvel Girl are battling the Mole Man and his mole monsters in Subterranea, but also kind of in the Eternals tunnels. And I love the Mole Man. He's like the Phantom of the Opera done right with these guys. He's great. (laughs) Plot line number three. Professor X is shacking up with Terry Martin, a single mom who has a mutant daughter named Ashley, and Xavier recently performed unauthorized psychic brain surgery on her, severing the connections in her brain. And now he and Terry are clearly fucking, although it never says that quite out loud. It's very much in subtext, and you wonder if Xavier is controlling or coercing her or not. Number four, Magneto has joined forces with the Submariner, and the Atlantean army is attacking the surface world because Magneto manipulated them, and the Fantastic Four is involved, and we will get to that in today's issue. Number 21 is called Let Loose the Dogs of War. Number 22 is called Friends and Enemies. Both of these are from August and September of 2001. John Byrne is writing, penciling, and lettering. We will certainly welcome John Byrne's content back on the show when we get there, but I'll be happy to take a break and retire into the early 70s for a while after this. Uh, Tom Palmer is on inks. VLM is on colors, uh, and it is vastly inferior to the work of Mr. Gregory Wright. Uh, Jason Liebig and Lisa Hawkins are the editors on this book, and this is right around the time when Jason was let go from Marvel, as discussed in my interview with him as well. Issue no, gone by this point. He's not even in the credits. Yeah, yeah. In 21, he's mentioned. In 22, he is not. Uh, not, not in 21. Oh, he's not even there, too. Okay. Oh, I don't know. I know. Mysteriously, he was gone. Uh, so have to, he wasn't even the one that got to call me, so... <laughs> Uh, issue number 21 the cover accurately reflects my feelings about this entire episode it's exhausting (laughs) not the episode the issue itself (laughs) pardon me the the episode's amazing Uh, we see Magneto triumphant with a circled R after Magneto's name implying that he's a company property Magneto (laughs) attacks the Fantastic Four with Crystal and the Submariner Havoc is attacked and Havoc has a trademark Havoc surrounded by humans with sticks and the X-Men are defeated another circled R Jean Grey has fainted and she and Cyclops and Beast have moloids all over them and professor x is powerless to help professor x doesn't get a trademark but he has a big old headache in the middle of the page and 12 characters on one page plus humans and moloids and uh, issue number 21 (laughs) 
I'm trying to cover all this quickly. Do you guys have any thoughts on the introduction to this book? Just a lot of stuff. It feels like a lot of storylines that it's like uh, Byrne is trying to do his version of Claremont X-Men, where storylines could just go on and on and on and kind of you wouldn't they'd introduce something and it wouldn't pay off for 13 issues but he does but he's trying to do it all at once so he like the relationship and he can't change things too much because it has to line up with where the x-men end up so professor x can't have a girlfriend when lilandra shows up and uh and uh, so it's like you know that this relationship with this mom is is doomed between her and professor x and it's like that would be an interesting story if he was dating a woman whose daughter is a mutant, but he has changed her brain so she doesn't know she's a mutant. And but that's you can't do anything with it. So it's a lot of like uh, it feels like it does. It just has that feeling of like, OK, imagine this page took place over six months, but we only have the one page. So we're going to condense it all here. And <laughs> for whatever reason, this whole series, uh, John Byrne is like, I cannot have all these X-Men in the same place at the same time. They need to be constantly split up and constantly in different places at different times. And their attention, I'm like, oh, I just wish someone would would go to the place where someone else was. Or they're, they're so much like, I'm going to go get those guys. Okay. And then they get distracted and they do something else. It's like, that, wait, but I still have to get them. But you don't wait for us. You go over there. And this, uh, this series is a lot of fun. My two large complaints. Number one, the characters are all over the place. And number two, the women are not treated well. They, the men get a lot of action and the women get a lot of passivity. And we've, we've talked about that throughout the series. Uh, one of the things that Elliot mentioned this earlier is this, this, uh, two issues is meant to be concurrent with that Fantastic Four story. So there's a lot of dialogue pulled directly out of that story, that old Stan mm -hmm. Lee story, but we see Astral Xavier as being inserted into this. So they're adding some scenes to the context of what would have been there originally. So we open this book, we see Magneto, uh, it sees the invisible woman flying by and he, she's like, she'll be the perfect hostage. But we see Xavier astrally confronting him. And I'm going to read this dialogue quickly. Xavier says, you cannot hope to win, Magneto. And, and Eric says, hope to win, Xavier? I already have one. It's merely a matter of time before I claim my victory. And Xavier says, I think not, Magneto, though you have tricked the Fantastic Four and the Submariner into fighting each other. It's truly only a matter of time before all involved discover your treachery. Magneto says, bah, though they feign a troubled friendship, the long-standing animosity between the Fantastic Four and Prince Namor is well known. Each side is ever prepared to think the worst of the other, which is why my scheme has been so easy to set in motion, which is kind of a perfect synopsis of every superhero meeting that's ever taken place <laughs> in comic books. And also, Xavier, or excuse me, Magneto is so horny for Namor because he's got his own nation and he's a mutant, which is what Magneto has always wanted. Namor is everything Magneto wants to be. And exactly. also... Has the confidence to walk around almost completely naked, whereas Magneto covers his whole body and has a cloak and has a helmet. He's just, and it's, I feel like it's not until the 90s, I guess maybe in the 80s, that Magneto becomes comfortable in his own skin and you see him walking around in just silk pajama pants with no shirt and like a robe. And it's like, that's definitely Magneto's, House of M, where he yeah, does yeah. that. Yeah. It's, it's like he's finally, when he feels confident and he feels in control, he can feel comfortable in his own skin and he can kind of like not cover up so much. So, that's what Magneto needs to feel comfortable is control of a nation. And he's so hot. Uh, Xavier then says, you sow the seed of your own undoing, Magneto, though she is often in the shadow of her male partners. It is within the potential of the invisible girl to be the most powerful member of the Fantastic Four. Magneto says, speak not, speak to me not of potential, Xavier. I have her. The wife of Mr. Fantastic has become the captive of Magneto. And Xavier says, you are a fool, Magneto. You threaten the one person whose endangerment will make both Reed Richards and Namor redouble their efforts against you. 
And Magneto says, I am well aware of the affection Namor has shown in the past for this human female, Xavier, but my plan is not yet done unfolding. There is another part which I will make the Submariner, which make the Submariner unable to defy me. And what he's referring to here is he's also captured Dorma. So we have another lady hostage that we'll see in a few pages. Any thoughts from the panel on uh, the Xavier Magneto dynamic? These poor two men who might be in love with each other, but just can't agree on a dream. It's it's very interesting to see this. There's two things I find interesting about this, uh, and then I'll stop monopolizing. Number one, that uh, that Professor Xavier is so baldly stating, baldly, but pun intended, so baldly stating John Byrne's feelings about the Invisible Woman. That like when John Byrne took over Fantastic Four, he changed her name to Invisible Woman. He kept he found all these things she could do with her powers and really built her up. That like for, it's very funny to have the, have a character so clearly stating the the writer's opinion about another character. We're like, he, she has the potential to be the most powerful member. If only some guiding force, some genius would take over control of that book. Uh, and the other thing, the other thing is that he has to, the weird thing is he has to balance the Xavier Magneto relationship from the Claremont era, which is for, with, with what the relationship from those original books, because those original Fantastic Four books, when it's Stanley and Jack Kirby on the first part, and then Stanley and John Romita on the, on the other ones, Magneto is a just a maniac. He's just and the way John, the way Jack Kirby draws him is he's just a crazy maniac with with like these constantly sneering and this part where he's just thinking he's like fools the fools you know and he's so Your hands and, are always like raw yeah, yeah. and <laughs> it's very interesting to see um like that this you you writing those books you have this knowledge that of the different character Magneto will be from the one he was in that storyline you know and he kind of has to seam those together and I guess he's doing it. He's doing he's he's doing that pretty well. If Sue Richards can be the Invisible Woman, Yara dos Santos can be Shark Woman. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I <laughs> it was if I was John Byrne and I was doing Spider Man the X Men, I bet they would have let me do it. But unfortunately, yeah. yeah Shark Woman doesn't sound nearly as good as Shark Girl for some reason. Just oh, okay. I guess the rhythm is slightly off. I'll give you that. You know, I mean, not that the Invisible Woman actually. You know, I mean, really, why would you call him? You know, because funny in the movies, they frequently don't call each other by their superhero names. Mm-hmm. As you watch in the, in the new FF movie, they'll never call her the Invisible Woman. They'll be calling her Sue. And uh, the uh, and there's and in the current comics, they they frequently don't call each other by their superhero names. Everyone is always you don't have a mask on. You, you you are Sue Storm. Why do you need a code name? I guess so. It feels so much less fun to me if it's it's always the Avengers meet and they're like Steve. Tony, thanks for coming. As opposed to like Captain America, Iron Man, thanks for like, I don't want to see the adventures of Steve and Tony and Sue, you know? There's the internet now. People can research and they know characters from movies. It becomes a little easier. Uh, we jump back to the angel with Lucy Robinson. They are outside the stasis tubes of the promise. Lucy tells Angel that she can't get Alex or Lorna out of their stasis without killing them. Oh, no. And then Xavier appears, appears astrally to Warren, telling him about Magneto. But no one knows where the X-Men are because they're in the Eternals and he can't read their minds. All because of fucking Tobias Messenger. And also <laughs> Xavier's heard of Tobias Messenger during his world travels. Uh, Elliot, will you take us through the Mole Man uh, fight with the X-Men during which I find a shocking number of that's what she said jokes. <laughs> uh, you know, I could see that. I hadn't thought about it at the time, but I could see that. Their, their fight, so uh, we're picking up in media res, because I guess it started in the previous issue, that uh, the mole, the X-Men are fighting the giant monsters that the that the Mole Man is sending after them, because he has his supply of giant monsters. Iceman's ice is useless against the Moloids. They are used to extreme temperatures, and the Marvel Girl can't use her powers against the monsters, and it turns out 
that this is all tying back to the previous experience the Mole Man had with the X-Men, where at the end it seemed like he had lost his memory, but he regained it. Now he wants revenge. And uh, he triggers a trap, even though the monsters are doing a fine job of fighting these the, the, our heroes, he triggers a trap door that drops them into a deadly natural echo chamber that uh, that create that increases sound to the point where it is dangerous to you. But luckily, his moloids can ha- know how to move in silence. And so it's just very funny. He drops them into the chamber, and I'm like, oh, so he hopes the chamber will kill them. And then he's like, my moloids, who can move in silence, will take you to where we're going next. And I'm like, wait, so I don't understand why this was a perfectly fine plan. I don't know it's why he It's very Bond villain. Yes, it's very Bond villain. <laughs> and it's, it's beyond even like, I'll leave you with this laser. Ta-ta, Mr. Bond. Instead, it's like, hey, here's the death trap, but I've got some other ideas too. So it's like Mole Man is John Byrne in this sequence also, the same way Professor X goes, where he's like, I've got so many ideas for how to kill the X-Men. He's like, I want to do shopping. all of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the adventure he's referring to is that time, I think it's Steve Orlando's first appearance on my show, if I'm remembering right, when the Mole Man and Tyrannus built 20-foot robots so that they could battle underneath the earth and they kidnapped the Cobalt Man <laughs> and the X-Men. And it was so unsatisfactory. And at the end, Mole Man's like, well, I don't know who I am anymore. That's that's the battle they're referencing here. It's 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 too bad that the the this series it really was it was making me feel uh, in a way almost the like uh that there was kind of an imagination impoverishment in the 60s Marvel world, which is obviously not true. There were so many amazing things coming out, so many characters and ideas, but seeing how John Byrne is kind of working in the in the what's left over. From the that that he's that he can work with from that time, there are times like, oh yeah, that's right, I forgot they fought Tyrannus. And you mentioned the Cobalt Man. It's like, oh yeah, the Cobalt Man. Like the X Men really was not a very good book for a for a long time. <laughs> it was about a year or two ago. I guess it was it was whenever COVID was. I can't even remember anymore. But my younger son and I, or my older son and I, we read through all the X Men books from issue number one through the Dark Phoenix saga together in a row, and. He was, it was very funny because it was the first time he was getting used to the idea of different writers working on the same characters. And he'd be like, I'd turn, I'd, I'd turn the page and there'd be all these words. And he'd go, Roy Thomas, all those words, like way too many words. But it was very funny to get through those issues and have him be like, I don't know. He'd be like, so what happened to the locust? When does the locust show up again? And I'm like, almost never. Don't worry about it. Like just how, <laughs> how kind of. B grade what the X-Men were dealing with at the time was. That's literally the point of this podcast. Nobody reads <laughs> the original stuff. So now there's an episode on every one of those issues. Oh, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. uh, we jump back to Terry and Ashley Martin, who are super weirded out because Xavier has been slumped over in his wheelchair because his astral form is gone. Terry drives Ashley to school, and there seems to be some pretty clear evidence that Xavier is messing with their minds, although it's not stated outright. Because number one, Terry doesn't know when Xavier's leaving. Number two, she can't recall, or excuse me, she realizes she can't tell anyone that he's there. Number three, Ashley can't remember why he's there. And number four, Terry remembers the Sentinel attacking Ashley, which is not at all what happened. These characters will get a little more time, and then we literally never see them again. Uh, then we jump back to Xavier, Angel, and Lucy. They're trying to advance the clock on Havoc's suspension unit to make it seem like 10 years has passed so that he, that he can be awakened. But oh no, Havoc doesn't have his costume on and he's absorbing cosmic radiation and now he explodes! And Angel goes, wow, Havoc's power is the same as Cyclops, but unfocused, which makes no sense because they are not at all the same. <laughs> Lorna's unit was damaged and Havoc gets his uniform back on and then Lucy orders him to join Xavier while Angel helps her find the X-Men. She literally has to order him like, hey, get out of here, go into action. 
Then we see Angel flying through the tunnels to look for the X-Men when he's turned to stone briefly by a surprise appearance by Pix Pixie and Icarus of the Eternals. Because these are the deviant tunnels and they don't want them to... Oh, geez. We just are going to move past this because these Eternals here serve <laughs> no purpose. They're just two more characters that we did not need. And this story is so complicated already. But they uh, hadn't even been created yet. Yeah, that was it was like it was thing they you know that which I thought what are they doing here they you know Kirby hasn't you know created the Eternals. Yet. It's <laughs> almost like John Byrne is like I invented them now like they. That's, we that's we covered point. this on a previous episode about Yeti. Uh, Byrne was also writing Marvel: The Lost Generation, where the character right. Pixie and the character Yeti are being featured, and it's like he's trying to tie them together, but it just is unnecessary here. There's no reason for these characters to be here. Uh, so saying, Angel Angel turned to stone, and then it got better at the end. <laughs> and there's that moment when when they're when they're speeding up the tube, and Havoc, they're like. Havoc's body thinks it's 10 years of cosmic rays or something like that. Like it was, it was such a weird piece of science. And it reminded me of an old Wonder Woman comic where Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor, that's his name, right? They go back in time and they're, they're dinosaurs. And he tries to shoot the dinosaurs with his service revolver. And he goes, ah, but the gun hasn't been invented yet. So it doesn't work. And it's like, wait, that's not how, how machines work. <laughs> like that's not how physics works. Uh, Erica, do you want to tell us about Havoc's adventures in New York City? Yeah. So, um, Professor Xavier, who is not just with Magneto, but he's also with Angel, and he's now with Havoc in the alleys of New York City. Havoc thinks, okay, well, I've got to find everybody. And he sees that um, Namor's, uh, I guess, Atlantean guard, Atlantean army is walking through the city. And uh, Havoc thinks, okay, well, I'll just you know, blow them away while they can't see me. So Havoc does that. The problem is that then random denizens, random people are just like, whoa, look at that random mutant who just beat the crap out of all these, you know, fish people. Let's go get him. And then so Havoc is then in the middle of this like giant rumble and people are beating, like, I always love it when people just come out of nowhere and just happen to have vegetables with them or they just happen to have sticks to hit and pipes to hit somebody with. That's basically what it is, is these people just happen to have clubs. And so they start beating the crap out of Havoc. And then he's like, no, 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 please. I don't want to hurt anybody, but my powers are so out of control, even though I'm wearing the suit that two pages ago was supposed to help me control my powers. But anyway, uh, and then he, you know, bladows or thacooms. And, uh, you know, in, in uh, video games has his radial blast and everybody's thrown to the side and there's a whole big crater. And then it's, I didn't want to try and hurt them. Oh no, more civilians. Who's that? He must be one of those bad guys. That literally he says, he must be one of those bad guys. Look at what, look what he did to all them people. Uh, so then he gets chased again by other people who now one of them actually has a stick with nails in it. Because, like you do, um, the part that the really the part that really cracks me up here is Havoc sees these fishmen and he's like, "These guys aren't like me," and he blasts them. But then humans attack him, and because they're like, "Havoc's not like us." And then Havoc's like, "It's no fair. Everybody's always attacking me because they don't understand <laughs> me." Even though he literally just did that to the Atlanteans. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. like, dude, do you not see how this works? Um, and then we go back to Xavier, who again is you know floating all over Hell and Creation literally and uh he's back to say it's even worse than i feared 
Magneto is, has captured not only the Im invisible girl, but also Namor's beloved Lady Dorma. And you have the two of them in these uh, 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 basically giant test tubes. And uh, we have Magneto saying, where are the Fantastic Four, Namor? Why aren't they here to do me, to do me homage? They are of no concern to me. The time grows short and my patience grows shorter. Uh, if those cylinders aren't opened, time enough for that, my hot-tempered amphibian. He's not really an amphibian, I don't think. But, you know, whatever. Kingdom phylum class order or whatever it is. Um, first read Richards must be taught the terrible folly of trifling with Magneto. To the Baxter building! And if the Fantastic Four resist, they must be destroyed. Dun, now, dun, dun. I have some artist friends through this show. Uh, my friend Philip Seavey has an example who will sometimes take photos of themselves or their friends making crazy facial expressions so that they can use that for their character templates. This last issue of Magneto, like, like I'm just picturing like the artist taking a selfie so they can use it for this crazy like open mouth Magneto. Uh, okay, so continuing with with uh, issue number 22, it's the final issue. The cover says fade to black. Cyclops shows us his assets as he pushes Professor X off a ledge, maybe, or maybe into the giant sun. The four original X-Men wave bye-bye, and I see the word right right there on the cover. So I'm assuming Mr. Gregory Wright was involved with this particular cover. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah, I, I colored all the, all the covers from, I think, 15 on. It's pretty well done, and it's uh, it's it's a uh, showcasing your talent, which is really good. Uh, page one through three, we get a close up on the Baxter Building as the Fantastic Four prepare for the Atlantean Army, who are riding up the elevator. <laughs> but Astral Xavier is there to help. Uh, Gregory, do you want to walk us through what happens uh, as we get a couple pages into this issue with this battle with the Mole Man that seems to be going on forever? It well, it it, it continues to go on forever, but thank thankfully, you know. John Byrne loves to draw the thing, you know, so the thing tries to figure out what to do. Um, and, and, you know, Crystal actually is a really good shot of Crystal there, you know, um, you know, even though she, I shall not fail you, <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, you know, nothing really happens, you know, <laughs> they're just sitting there waiting for something to happen. So no, nothing really happens in, until we cut back to the mole man. You know, who now he's got them imprisoned for some reason, you know, tied to, I don't know, some chain, which is easily broken. <laughs> Beast, Beast says, your melodic, your melodic metaphor seems most inappropriate to the moment, Mole. It thus behooves this the bellicose beast to put a coda on your disharmonic designs. Oh, shut up, Hank. I know. That's, <laughs> that's all I kept thinking when I'm like, why do they keep, I mean, I, it's not that much fun to write. It's, it's, it's just, why would you say that at this moment? <laughs> and it's, and it's the, the old thing of to show someone jumping in, in, in mid action and to have that many words is just very funny. Cause it's like, I hope, I hope there's a lot enough distance between me and the ground so I can get all of this out before I land and have to do something else. But it could have been funny. But you know, it's not funny. You know, <laughs> a different writer might have said, "I know how to make this funny." But a no. little beast goes a long way. <laughs> it's what I what I learned from reading this was that beast as the same thing that I felt when I was young, which is beast works best for me when he is a blue furry guy who is who is kind of very smart, but is also the life of the party and is not necessarily using right. big words all the time, but is like. Just a just a joyful guy to be around, and also looks like a like kind of a a wolf a blue wolf man. And yeah, but he's evil now. 
that's the, it makes me so sad that he's just evil now. They've, they've, they keep outdoing themselves without evil he is. And there's no bringing him back at this point, unless like all the X-Men, he dies and comes back and he's like, Oh, what did I yeah, miss? But he's folks? got all those clones now. Oh yeah, I know too many clones. This is, if I can, if I, this is the thing that is bothering me the most about the current X-Men run is that they're like, it's fine. We always come back from the dead. And it's like, well, you don't come back from the dead. Someone who looks just like you and has all your memories up till this moment comes back, but you are still dead. And it feels like I haven't read a story yet where anyone grapples with the fact that like, well, there's going to be a me running around, but it's not the me who's thinking right now. Like I'm still going to die. They're just so well, eager to throw themselves that's in. That's what's happening with, with X-23, with Laura and old woman Laura. Oh, yeah, that's right. Who's okay. now Talon. But also Baby Laura, who was Scout. Uh, there's a great moment yes, at the sorry. Hellfire Gala. Jean Grey has just been murdered. And she has, she's asking Firestar to be a spy for Orcus. And there's this whole thing that's going on. Uh, if you haven't read the Hellfire Gala yet, geez. Oh, geez. It's nuts. Uh, but but uh, but Angelica at Firestar goes, but what if people don't believe I did bad things? Like, what am I going to tell the bad guys? And Jean goes, just tell them Beast did it. Like, everyone will believe you. <laughs> <laughs> there's that. There's that also that they're like, the, the characters... I don't know. They, 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 they're fully aware of which ones of them are evil, and they're like, it's fine. Sinister was working with us. It turns out he's a bad guy. I guess we should have realized that because he always has been. Well, okay, what are we going to do? You know, The name Sinister, you know, didn't <laughs> tip anybody off. You know, yeah. I feel like there's a, there's a certain, the X-Men, in a way that can be good sometimes, in a way that doesn't work for me other times, in their current books, has become very Real Housewives. And so the characters are used to being snippy and kind of bitchy with each other. And sometimes that can be very fun, but it also means they kind of forget when the line crosses between bitchy, bitchy and evil, when it's like, Oh yeah, that's right. You, I think of you as like, like, oh, that's rude. But I should remember that you're a murderer. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Gregory, keep us going with the mole man fight. <laughs> oh, where to be? Oh well, you know, uh, as they're trying to escape, somehow Cyclops is able to hold the the, the roof together with his eye beams, which I don't understand. <laughs> um, uh, I will never quite understand, you know that. Um, and and while he's holding them up, you know, Warren shows up. Oh um to to fly them out of there one at a time while you know because it cyclops must be holding this roof up for like 10 20 minutes while <laughs> lies down and grabs each each one um of there until they finally get we get back to the fantastic four where there's a lot more dialogue yeah, I'll take this part. So this is back where the Fantastic Four, it's we're 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 taking stuff from the original three-issue run that we just talked about. And Xavier's astrally there. So Xavier helps Reed build the device that he built by himself in Fantastic Four that's going to disrupt the harness that Magneto is using to draw energy in order to boost his powers. Magneto hears that the Atlanteans didn't defeat the Fantastic Four and he yells, Bungling fools, I shall deal with them myself. And they didn't want to fight the FF in the first place. He's holding <laughs> Lady Dorma hostage. Uh just in time, the X-Men or or excuse me, the Fantastic Four are attacking and the Fantastic, uh, the Fantastic Car and the Atlanteans are like, Magneto, they have a weapon. And Magneto's like, bah, have I not demonstrated that no weapon can harm me? And Crystal is giving us face in one of Erica Schultz's favorite panels of all time. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell us about Crystal's look here, Erica? <laughs> she is like, it's a combination between... Um, it's like her own sort of wannabe Dark Phoenix, but she's not mm -hmm. as cool as Dark Phoenix, um, combined with some like strange constipation. It's like, <laughs> like a, it's like very Agatha Harkness somehow. Yes. 
Yes, like I'm trying to be evil, but I still can't stop saying that I'm I'm part of the royal family and I'm a princess. So yeah. it's also it's very unclear why she's doing what she's she's creating like kind of a tempest, you know, but it doesn't hurt anybody. And then Reed Richards is like, oh, good. You gave me the split second I needed to get into Magneto. It's like, how did you do that? I guess uh, distracting him for a second. But it's it it's very unclear why she's doing that. And all that but all that dialogue is straight out of the the old the Fantastic Four issues. Right. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Uh, Reed uses the electromagnetic converter to turn Magneto's power back on himself, and then he's stuck in an energy cone, which he can't break through for some reason until the end of this issue. Uh, Dorma and Sue are- And you can't can't give John Byrne grief for that, because that's pure Stanley science Mm -hmm. in in that one, yeah. 60s and 70s defeats of this character are done. (laughs) Uh, Dorma and Sue are freed. Namor takes his army back to Atlantis. Namor flies away and says, I leave you to your world of strife and never-ending war. Yeah, pot and kettle, Namor. <laughs> you're, you're, you're the problem a lot of the time. And Xavier's like, Namor and I really understand each other. We're both misfits. And again, fuck you. Magneto's going to get a lot of time on my show in the next few months. Uh, in October, we're doing a full Magneto prequel month. And then November is going to cover about six different early 70s Magneto appearances, including that time he fought the Inhumans and the Amazing Adventures, and then the Defenders and the Avengers, and also the Fantastic Four. So we'll get lots of Magneto here. Uh, oh, but, but then you get you get the story where he gets turned into a baby, and that's that's a that's a that's a great story. Alpha the Ultimate Mutant is amazing. I love him. <laughs> I I just I found a a mistake in the art on the next two pages. Uh, Xavier should have a color hold uh, on this page and he should also have a color hold all the way back here gregory see what i'm talking about yeah yeah and he should have a color hold on this panel well he does it's just very light he's astral maybe they're trying to make he was because everything else the color hold he had he had a blue color hold Yeah, yeah it's still a color hold it's just not a very good one yeah and you can't see he, he, that last panel, especially. It looks like he's there. There's no feeling uh, that you can yes. see through all, him. All of these panels, it's exactly the same thing. It's like this is what I'm saying. The, the guys that did the steps, that nobody was checking. So the continuity, what should have been the, this terrible color hole that we used throughout, needs to be throughout because it does. When you zip through, it doesn't look like he's got a color hole. So you're like, is he there? Because then they have it when he goes back to havoc. Uh, Gregory, somebody else did those pages. Yeah. Gregory, tell us about the uh, the X-Men escaping from Subterranea, if you would. Oh, that's the best part. As they escape, they try to explain Bobby's temper. Uh, you know, and and I always think, you know, they, that I, I think Byrne was trying to, like, play around with, you know, Bobby's, you know, am I gay? Am I not gay kind of thing back then? Because, you know, he didn't know. Um, so that's the way. So he had just had him have a temper. Um, but that's pretty much all it is, is they, they do that. They get out because... They're like Bobby. I thought oh, you quit the team. This drives me crazy. Like, At the end, they get out, and the this does, and the the what you call it, the Monster Island is ruined. Why does it look like hot lava? There's yeah. they can't stand on hot lava. <laughs> it doesn't look ruined. It looks like lava. I, uh, I, I just don't. They're like uh, they're like Bobby. I thought you quit the team, and he's like, yeah, but me and Xavier can be friends again. Xavier didn't mean to fake his death. That was just a thing that happened anyway. And then this is a reference to Monster Island getting nuked by the Fantastic Four at the end of FF number one. That's why they're showing it this way. Which it's, is, but it wouldn't look like that. 
that's a wild page of real estate on an issue that feels very yes. crowded and has to, like a lot to wrap up still. It felt like it was supposed to be a big reveal moment. Monster Island. And it's been nuked. And it the next time we see them, they're gone. And it doesn't matter. And there, it's you're right. It's a lot of real estate to spend on. But John Byrne, during this period, because I remember reading some issues of, I think it was Orion that he did the art for. Sure, he, yeah. seemed, he seemed to really love drawing rocks. He loved drawing rocks and boulders and would really go at it. And so I feel like with Monster Island, he's like, this is my chance to do almost a whole page of just rocks, rocks and cliffs. Plus the thing, the thing's here too. Yeah, the thing. <laughs> oh, if only all the characters were made out of rocks. <laughs> the thing. Okay, yeah. we've got seven pages left. I'm going to cover this part quickly because it covers all the remaining plot lines that we needed to wrap up. Xavier tells Havoc that Magneto's been defeated. And he says, the first time I have seen him fall in true defeat. Is it? Is he really truly defeated? I mean, he got pulled into space by the stranger that one time. And one time Thor trapped him in the middle of the earth in like a giant energy sphere. And also Toad kicked him into the ocean. Oh, whatever. Okay, I guess you're right, Xavier. So Havoc reflects on how terrible it was that those humans attacked him. Uh, then he, he says, any one of those normal, decent, upright American citizens would have cheerfully killed me for no more reason than my genes got lined up differently than theirs, even though he did the same thing to the Atlanteans. And Xavier says, a lesson may, uh, well learned, Alex Summers, not all are mutants. Sometimes, sometimes no more that a slight difference of faith is enough, such as the yoke humanity must, it seems, ever wear. And then Havoc is back with Lucy, who was able to wake Lorna up. And literally all Lorna did in this series for 22 issues was ride around in a car, get mentally zapped into a stasis tube, and then get freed. Ugh, the women in this series, it makes me uncomfortable. The other members of The Promise are also awake, but it seems that Tobias Messenger died. He just switched off somehow. I'm betting that Lucy told him to drop dead or he's faking his own death. The Promise members decide to go off on their own, and Lucy makes her plans makes plans to use her powers to boss people around. This would make a great supervillain. I would actually love to see Lucy Robinson back in the uh, stories as some sort of villain. In pages 19 and 20, Xavier Rube turns to his body and then is like, okay, I gotta go to the Martin family. Terry stands at his car and she says, will I see you again, Charles? And he says, of course, Terry. I have finished monitoring Ashley's recovery, but in a few years, it will be time to remove the block I've placed in her mind and let her power manifest itself naturally. And Terry says, a few years? Then I guess for now, this is goodbye. And Xavier Earth says, yes, Terry, I do not need my telepathic abilities to know what is in your mind. I will admit they are not unreciprocated, and I am deeply flattered that you believe yourself to have such feelings for me. But time has taught me a bitter lesson, and that is that there is no such place in my life for romance. Not anymore. Not until my dream has been seen through to its fulfillment. Fuck you, Charlie Xavier. I'm so annoyed with him in this whole relationship. He zapped her daughter and then like fucked her and was like, okay, hey, bye, I gotta go now. It's not you, it's me. Oh, I hate this scene. Then we see off panel, there's a mention that the X-Men have returned Avia to the Savage Land. Beast says, Avia seemed glad to be home, Angel, though even lacking the power of speech, she was still able to express her feelings for you. And Angel says, I'm sure we'll see her again someday. They don't. And now there's the greatest surprise party for Hank, who's turning 20. He blows out his candles in the grossest way. There's like spit <laughs> all over the cake. And he goes, I'd completely forgotten today was the jubilee of my genesis. And here is the final words of the series. Candy Southern is back for the party. 
Beast says, I must confess a small degree of sadness. Candy says, why, Hank? And Beast says, for all our time together, the popular press has often referred to us to we X-Men as the strangest teens of all, Candy. Now that nomenclature can no longer apply. And then Gene, as Cyclops uses his optic blast to slice up the spit cake, says, I wouldn't worry too much about that, Hank. After all, we're not exactly all X-Men either. <laughs> and they all fought happily ever after. Okay, guys, what are your thoughts on the conclusion of the Hidden Years? <laughs> I tried to make it painless, I promise. It looks like Hank has, when he's blowing out the candles, it almost looks like he has... um like uh uh powers like bobby kind of the way it's drawn yeah yeah oh yeah kind of which is just gross yeah that's why you never eat birthday cake ever well i was like during covid you start realizing certain things like people blowing out candles oh my god you're blowing all your germs all over the cake i also think gene has got a weird smile on that last panel It's like I a do, Joker smile. I do agree with what Elliot said earlier that the the perfect ending here would have been like transitioning into Krakoa, but there's so much wrapped up in the last couple pages. At least they wrapped it all up. They gave us the end for Lucy, the end for the promise, a speech bubble end for Avia, and then we get to wrap up with these characters. And just as a quick aside, if we take the hidden years all together, there's a number of characters introduced that we have never seen again. The members of the promise, Avia, Stefan Kruger, and his freaks, quote unquote, uh, Miss Delusia, uh, the evil Dazzler's never shown up again. We've got Ashley and Terry Martin and Lucy Robinson. And that's, that's a lot. <laughs> I'm so happy to be done with this, you guys. Well, the biggest problem with this series, as fun as it, it is, is it's basically a fill-in issue that it has to pick up someplace and it must end someplace else and you can't change anything at all. Everything that happens has to dovetail into this. It's like anytime we had to write a fill-in issue or like even an annual, you know, I got, you know, I, I wrote a lot of annuals. I, you know, okay, the character's here. So, you know, you're writing Spider-Man. Okay, he's married. And you must mention Mary Jane. And she must be in here. And you have to have this continuity in here. Oh, and by the way, at, by the, at the end, it has to stay exactly where it is. So I can't do anything to any of the characters that the continuity might do. And that's basically what the task that burnt. I mean, he created his own problem to do that. But he also was left pretty much completely alone to do it. So you get these couple issues that's just so much blah, 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 blah. Whereas had he been edited, you know, by Mark Grunewald or by Mike Carlin or by people that were really good editors for him. Or even by Jason Liebig, because John Byrne would not let Jason edit. No, him. he wouldn't let anybody, you know, it, you know, you, you might've gotten it pared down, you know, we're going to, let's simplify this. Let's, let's actually explore this part a little more and not worry about all this other stuff. Cause it, it just got so much, these last couple issues, you're just like, what? You know, I would have liked to have seen this, this, this that you talked about. I, I always hate that when writers talk about something that happens. Um, I wanted to I want to see that, you know, we, there was the problem that we had when the image guys started doing those giant pages of people standing there. Um, instead of seeing the fight that I wrote, that I spent days choreographing, I got a guy standing there. Now I got to write about a fight that we don't see that would have been interesting to see, except for the artist wanted to draw a guy standing there and the editor went, OK. Um, Burn at least doesn't do that, but th- there's a lot of talking about things that we didn't get to see that. Well, I'd like to see that. That sounds a little more interesting. 
Hidden Years, if I'm able to reflect briefly, does its job. It takes the stories from the 60s. It gives us a lot of continuity that we hadn't seen in years. It works in stories for characters that we love, like Magneto and Sauron. It does some really fun deep digs into the, like, the promise characters come from stories from the 50s and early 60s. Uh, we get some team-ups with the FF. Crystal shows up. There's some fun moments with the Mole Man. Uh, we get we get Craven the Hunter for a couple of issues. Like, this is a lot of fun. There's a lot of stuff I would love to have seen. It would be fun to have Juggernaut here. It'd be great to have... I mean, we got a Sentinel story. It does its job. It's nostalgic. It's fun. And a lot of the art is really beautiful. I'm so happy we spent the time on it. And I'm really glad we're done. <laughs> So as we that are that was wonderful. It's in the rear view. <laughs> and every time I'm a lister, I love to make a list and I love to check something off a list and make a new list. So this feels like a big professional accomplishment to be moving on to new content. And I'm really uh, I'm really excited to do a lot of Magneto stuff in the very near future. Uh, I am such a fan of all three of you. It's so fun to nerd out and to call you my friends. I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you for the gift of your time and talents. As we are wrapping up, uh, let's let people know where people can find each of you online. And what would you like to plug, given that we are pulling this out in early September? Uh, let's let Elliot Kalen go first. You can find me online, me, Elliot Kalen, at Elliot Kalen on Twitter until Twitter crumbles under the under the weight of everything that's being done to it. That's E-L-L-I-O-T-T-K-A-L-A-N. Uh, or if you go to the podcast app of your choice, perhaps the one where you're listening to this one, uh, you can check out the Flophouse podcast, the podcast I've been doing for about 16 years now. And that, it's so uh, fun, you guys. <laughs> thank you. It's And it's a, uh, ostensibly a bad movie podcast, but it's more about comedy than about movies, I guess, or about making jokes. Uh, I have a couple of uh, kids' picture books out uh, that are in stores, uh, one called Horse Meets Dog and one called Sharko and Hippo, and I'll have another one coming out sometime in the next year or two that at the moment is called uh, Sadie Mouse Wrecks the House. And uh, please buy them for children that you know or adults with childlike intelligence levels. Uh, they'll enjoy them also. Uh, and uh, I mentioned uh, if it's that I'm working on a book about joke writing called Joke Farming that will be out hopefully sometime next year or the year after. So I know these are things, I guess, mark your calendars. Go to your calendar. Go to next year. And write down that these things are coming out. And uh, I hope you get them. And thanks so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Elliot, you are tremendously fun and charming. And I love your work. And I hope we get to nerd out again sometime. I think you're delightful. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope that the strike resolves itself very quickly when those assholes realize that they need to give money to the people who are making funny things happen for their companies. Uh, I hope we have a quick resolution on that. Thank you. That's actually, I should have I should have mentioned that too. Even more important than my things that I make uh, is if you would like to support uh, the Writers on Strike right now, the Writers Guild, and also the Screen Actors Guild, and in addition, the people in entertainment who are affected by the strikes, who are not in the guilds, but are still in need of, of worker help, uh, please consider going to entertainmentcommunity.org and donating to the Entertainment Community Fund, a fund where entertainment workers who are in need of financial assistance can apply and get that assistance. We really appreciate uh your support and the public support it's a uh, it stinks but uh but it's got to be done so hopefully the strike will end at some point with uh positive things for the people who make the stuff that we like watching and listening to that's about as the most general description of entertainment i can make right <laughs> thank you thank you elliot and we'll go over to erica next 
Um, okay, so you can find me on socials at Erica Schultz 42 and on Instagram at Erica Schultz Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. My website is ericaschultzwrites.com. Um, so in October, I have X23 Deadly Regenesis trade paperback is coming out October 4th. Uh, and also Hallow's Eve, um, the first uh, trade paperback is coming out in, at the end of October. Marvel Zombies number two will be in stores in November, and Daredevil Gang War number three will be in stores in December. Uh, I'm so excited for you writing Electra. That's amazing. Well, she's Daredevil now. You can't refer well, to her. Yes. She's not Electra. She's Daredevil. I'm just saying, I mean, it's still I her know. first name. It's fine. I know, I know. <laughs> Hey, we have we have an angry woman. Who are we going to get to write an angry woman? Oh, call Erica up. Okay. <laughs> and then well, she, used to be they would just they would just give it to me. You know. Now I'm the now I, I'm the writer of angry women. So yeah. sorry, um, I took your job. It. No, no, no. <laughs> and then over to Gregory next. Uh, you can sign me on Facebook. Um, I'm I'm still on X, but you'll I very rarely uh, respond to anything other than you, basically, Chad. Um, uh, and then I'm on Instagram for, with my food pictures. Uh, I think it's, I think, is it G right stuff or? Yes. Yeah. G right stuff. And I'll tag you when we put this out. Um, and I've got, um, I'm currently working on with Graham Nolan, a, a ghost story takes, takes place in the Florida Keys called the ghosts of Matacumba key. Um, and that's a crowdfunded book, which you can find on Indiegogo. And we are, I'm not sure. I think that's coming out at the end of the year. I believe um and then endless trade paperbacks keep coming out out of stuff that i worked on it's usually the any, any of the tim sale batman stuff every time i turn around they send me another box here we, we've reprinted this like for the 50th time and then i get a little check from dc you know that part's nice. one nice thing you know i do have to say both dc and marvel have been very good about all, all these reprints i do get my my royalties from them and it's very fun when you get a check for five cents um it, it's happened. I'm like, why? You know, why did you bother? Just wait. You know, it cost you more money to send me. Uh, lastly, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but the three of you are welcome to add me. But you can find me Graymalk and PP like podcast on Twitter, Graymalk and underscore lane on Instagram. I'm also on Discord and Threads loosely. Uh, the next episode out immediately after this is going to one of our final two flashback month episodes. We get to cover the amazing X Force minus one. Featuring the incredible uh, combination of Jed McKay, Scotty White, and Sarah Gailey. And the next Patreon episode immediately after this episode will feature the character Black Womb with Anthony Oliveira and Sarah Century. Both are going to be wildly fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for the ongoing support. Uh, thank you, Elliot. Thank you, Gregory. Thank you, Erica. We will see you back here next time on Grey Malk and Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help... Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.